Hello, and welcome to this FRDH, First Rough Draft of History podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. Who's in charge here? Even before the election season, American society was being convulsed by new social-political movements, but no one seemed to be in charge of them. I'm talking about QAnon and Black Lives Matter. Do you have any idea who runs them? If I still worked in daily journalism, and an assignment editor said, we need a piece about QAnon and its influence on anti-vaxxers, who would I go to? Who's their spokesperson? For weeks I've been reading this about QAnon. It's a conspiracy theory. That's the definition. A conspiracy theory. Well, yeah. So is the idea that 9-11 was an inside job and the Twin Towers were brought down by explosive charges rather than two jetliners flying into them. That bit of paranoia may inform some people's political thinking, but it's not a movement that seems to be organized to take over one of America's two main political parties. A conspiracy theory doesn't emanate from the ether. It doesn't appear as a hand on the wall writing many, many tekel ufarsin. It begins with a person or small group of people. Who or whom is QAnon? In the wake of the George Floyd murder, there were spontaneous demonstrations around the country. The slogan from an earlier spate of police executions of African Americans, Black Lives Matter, was revived. The demonstrations continued for weeks. They still continue. Black Lives Matter became a movement. But if the assignment editor sent me out to do a story about it, to whom would I speak? When the Black Panthers burst on the national consciousness more than 50 years ago, if an editor had said to teenage me, do a story on the Panthers, I would have known how to proceed. The Black Panthers had a minister of information, Eldridge Cleaver. Get a number for him, begin the process. Or maybe contact the local chapter of the Black Panthers. And if there was no phone number listed, a distinct possibility, then just show up at the office or at a school where they were providing free breakfasts for kids whose parents were too poor to feed them. The leadership of the civil rights movement was diffused over many organizations, from the Southern Christian Leadership Conference to the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee to the NAACP. It was a movement with leaders and spokespeople. When the National Guard murdered four students at Kent State University in 1970, within five days, more than 100,000 people turned up in Washington to demonstrate. I was among them. A reporter assigned to find out what was going on would have been able to contact the new mobilization committee to end the war or call the D.C. City Council to find out how and why a permit was granted. Who asked for it? There's a logic to the process. A group with a leader initiates an activity. Al-Qaeda may have operated in the shadows of the Internet, but it clearly had a leader, and even when he was incommunicado, he was still at the top of a chain of command. Now we seem to have activities, directed, but from nowhere. At least if you're following events through traditional news media, QAnon and BLM are distinct 21st century phenomena, a product of something that didn't exist in the 20th century, social media. Activism recapitulates online reality today. Diffuse, yet at the same time parochial, algorithm-directed. When people leave the privacy of their bedrooms or toilets or wherever they have taken their devices to access the Internet to meet in groups, 
There's no established hierarchy or leadership. There's a great deal of emotional energy present, but it cannot be channeled. This is a reflection of the nature of communication now. Anonymity at the user interface, to use tech jargon, anonymity first became an accepted part of online life almost at its beginning. Anonymity and tech had been twinned for a long time. Remember the trucker CB radio craze of the 1970s? Smokey and the Bandit. Anonymous Handles. The Guardian was one of the first newspapers to pioneer below the article readers' comments in its online edition. Anonymity was offered to users, and the result was that, from the first, the comments were an obnoxious sewer of stupidity. I used to be an occasional contributor to The Guardian and knew the paper's supreme editor, Alan Rusbridger, a little bit. We have engaged about this. It seemed to me obvious that anonymity was the reason for the disgraceful discourse that went on in his newspaper. I always used my real name when I commented there. Alan has always defended anonymity as part of the democratizing process, something that allowed people to come out and feel free to write down their thoughts and share them in public. I still disagree with him. When Twitter was invented, the anonymous ethos of the web was essential to its success. Much of the leftish sewage at The Guardian was rerouted to Twitter, where it swirled up against sewer pipes from the right wing, and also beamed in from planet Zog, to create the insane platform Twitter has become, a place where I can find the latest real news from Mosul in Iraq, a city I know and care about, to the 100% pure, unadulterated snark shit that a generation of millennials millennials think is the way to talk about and fix the crumbling world they're about to become leaders of. Fake accounts purporting to be real politicians and celebrities sprouted. There's a reason the president's account is at real Donald Trump. But when people meet in public and have to come out and are no longer anonymous, things change. When the Occupy movement spread to London, I reported on it. I went down to St. Paul's Cathedral, where the demonstrators had settled, having effectively been given sanctuary by the dean. I hung out for a couple of days. All of the righteous indignation that had given rise to the international movement that began in Spain after the 2008 crash with the group who called themselves Indignados did not organize itself with the implied hierarchies that come with any organization. I spent an incredibly depressing day on the grand front steps of St. Paul's, listening to speaker after speaker say what was on their mind. The only organization seemed to be making sure one person at a time spoke. It was a cross between a Quaker meeting and a Twitter thread. Many of the speakers were psychologically damaged and looked like they veered between sheltered housing and living on the streets. When Occupy had started in Zuccotti Park in New York as a response to the crash, a lot of people, me included, were excited. Here was spontaneous pushback against a corrupt political economic system that had entrenched inequality and very nearly destroyed itself in the world economy, and yet the political system had bailed out the miscreants, leaving the rest of us scrambling to get back to some kind of employment. But organizing this energy proved impossible. It was powerful online, less so face-to-face. 
Then came the Arab Spring. Brave Egyptians, mostly young, plugged into social media, took to Tahrir Square, demanding the ouster of Hosni Mubarak and free elections. Western media descended on Cairo and excitedly interviewed young activists, extolled the brilliance of social networks through which a revolution had been organized. But it wasn't organized. It was generated. There was really no organizing principle. Mubarak went and elections were held and the brave, young, modernizing people of Tahrir got a freely elected government, but it was led by the Muslim Brotherhood, followed by a military coup and an even more repressive regime than the one they went into the street to demand the overthrow of in the first place. Might an organized, rather than spontaneously generated uprising, have done better? Anyway, following those two examples, we now have Black Lives Matter following the same course. BLM activities continue, but is there a national organization? After four months, is there any more to it than a slogan and small groups in American cities who still turn out to demonstrate against the continued killing of black people by American law enforcement? Will it end up like Occupy, running out of steam, attracting people who are already living at society's margins, or even worse, attracting a brutal repression and there are no organizational structures in place to resist it. The QAnon situation is much more unsettling, spawned in anonymity, completely diffuse, yet somehow already sufficiently entrenched in the Republican Party that at least half a dozen of its nominees for political office this autumn pledge allegiance to it. The media hasn't even figured out how to describe QAnon, beyond it's a conspiracy theory. BuzzFeed, a 21st century kind of news organization, recently had a go at a better definition. The editors at BuzzFeed News, they published, have become uneasy about using conspiracy theory to describe QAnon, which has grown to encompass a whole alternative world of beliefs and signals. The copy desk has to stay on top of language and note when terms become stale and reductive. QAnon has shifted, and so should how we write about it. QAnon is a collective delusion, and that's what BuzzFeed News will be calling it from now on. A collective delusion? Well, it's a description, true, but who's in charge? Well, unlike BLM or Occupy, there is someone or some folks in charge, and they are aware of the world in which they're hiding, and they want to keep it that way. I'm writing this podcast script on September 18th, 2020. On September 17th, a post on a message board appeared saying, Drop all references, Ray Q, QAnon, to avoid ban, termination. Apparently, Twitter and other social media platforms are coming under pressure to take QAnon posts down. In another post, Q, or whoever he might be, and I'm pretty sure it's a he, says, if somebody comes to accept a truth or swallow a red pill without knowing it was associated with Q, then they do so unpolluted by media bias, Ray QAnon, bypass prejudice, makes sense. And then someone whose handle is at Gitmo awaits, writes, goodbye Q, we're just patriots now, Patriots armed with the largest public release of knowledge since the Age of Enlightenment. Now we ride forth into the midnight air 
and pushed the plan. For all its lack of hierarchy, Q, as opposed to BLM, does direct its followers. Push the plan. And what's the plan? Vote for Trump. Which brings me back to my opening question. Who's in charge here? And that's all for this FRDH podcast. I assure you, there is no one directing me. You know exactly where to find me and who I am. You can find me at www.goldfarbpod.com. Drop me a line. I love to hear from listeners. And while you're there, make a donation to keep the podcasts coming. Thanks.